I spent some time in eastern Tennessee this weekend. On Friday night, I played a gig in the Smoky Mountains. In the middle of nowhere, they said they call it Rocky Branch, Tennessee. And I played at a fellow named Michael's house. Really nice people. Enjoyed him. He said that uh, he used to be a TSA agent there in Knoxville. And I asked him, I said, you probably meet a lot of interesting people coming through there, don't you? He says, well, I once got to frisk Hulk Hogan. So he got my attention with that one. And, uh, he said that somebody once found a driver's license laying somewhere, and they brought it up to him. And he looked at the name on the driver's license, and it said Ray Wiley Hubbard. So he got to get over to PA there in the airport and say, would Ray Wiley Hubbard please come over? We have your driver's license. But Ray shows up and said he was as nice as could be, just really happy that they found it. And he later mailed the autograph poster and a lot of good stuff like that. When I heard those stories, I knew that I was amongst my people. And then the next day I went to Knoxville and went into WDVX radio station there that's been really good to me throughout the years and got to talk to some nice folks. And when I left there, I went to a local building. It used to be a hotel. It's where Hank Williams spent his last evening before he made that fateful ride. And then I went to Smoky Mountain Harley-Davidson. It's right, right there in the foothills of the Smokies. They have a venue called The Shed. And I got to play for those folks. They've always been really nice to me. That's the place with the Evil Knievel suit I was telling you about that I still don't fit into. But played a really nice gig. My buddy Mark gave me some tomatoes and squash and cucumbers, brought them home. Amy is just in love with the tomatoes. She said they're just great. Or maters is what we call them where I come from. It was a really good weekend. Everywhere I went, I met people that said they listen to this show and then enjoy it. And you know how I always enjoy hearing that from people. So I'm home for just a few days and then I fly over to England and I'm going to play about three weeks worth of shows in the UK and in Switzerland. So I hope I get to see some of you guys and you can check out all those dates at otisgibbs.com. Like I said, if you show up at the gigs and uh, you listen to this show, please tell me. I love to hear that sort of thing. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Cheetah Chrome. Cheetah is a guitar player, he's a singer, a songwriter, he's an A&R man, and he's a bona fide rock and roll legend. You might know him from his bands Rocket from the Tombs or the Dead Boys. You can find out everything you need to know about Cheetah at cheetahchrome.com. There's a point in each of our lives when we see an album cover and we buy the record just because the album cover looks really cool. And Night of the Living Dead Boys was one of those for me. I was probably 13 or 14 years old, and I was at Karma Records in Greenwood, Indiana, and I saw those pictures on the back, and I was like, who are these people? It just looked like something so out of my reality. They looked dangerous, you know, it was all this dangerous-looking rock and roll stuff. 
So I bought the record right then and there, and that's the day that I became a Dead Boys fan. Cheetah was nice enough to invite me into his office there at Plowboy Records here in Nashville, Tennessee. And his office is Eddie Arnold's old office. And it looked like a little bit of a time capsule. Everything's the same as Eddie Arnold left it. It was really cool to get to chat with him right there. But um, he's a really great guy, really nice guy, and he opened up a lot to me. He shared so many great stories that I decided I would turn this into a two-parter. So here's part one, Cheetah Chrome. Yeah, well, that was in our loft on uh, West 6th Street. And um, it was a full floor of the building. Uh, it was just like a, uh, an old building, kind of like a New York-style building, actually. You know, it, it was like one street that looked like New York in Cleveland. <laughs> and um, it had huge, you know, high ceilings. I mean, they had to be like 20-something feet high. And all old wood. It was a fire trap completely. And it's, but it sounded great. I mean, you get in there with a couple of carpets, and it really had a good sound. And um, when we went to do the recordings, we had uh, really uh, it was a rush job. We had like one day, one or two days to do it. And um, we went in at like six o'clock one day and came out at six in the morning and recorded all that stuff in that period. I think it was two microphones that we hung from the you know over the sprinklers. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we would play a song and play it back and listen to it. And, you know, we, we and this is back with the old Voice of the Theater PA system. And uh, we'd, we'd do the song, we'd listen to it back. And if we didn't like it, we'd do it again. And no overdubs. <laughs> was this a quarter inch tape machine? Oh, well, yeah, sure was. Yeah. And just like a little, you know, mixing board, just like a little shore mixing board, PA head, you know, PA mixer. <laughs> yeah. I think I read somewhere that this uh, loft was haunted or something. Oh, yeah. There was always something going on with the ghosts. Um, I have no idea of what happened there, but something definitely did. Um, it started when we would be playing, and you know, we'd come to the end of a song, we would hear the elevator going up or down, you know. And um, the thing was that we had a key to the elevator, and so when we got up on our, our floor, we could lock the elevator, so we couldn't go anywhere. And, you know, so we would all go running over there and look, and the door was open. The <laughs> it was still locked. And I mean, this happened all the time, the elevator. The elevator was just a constant thing. Um, footsteps, either, you know, on the floor above us, um, like on Sunday afternoons when nobody was there. And, you know, we could go out our, our steps up there and, you know, hit these sliding metal doors that, you know, slid down you put a padlock on the bottom you know it would be completely locked up there's no other way in except for the freight elevator you know we go out and check that there's nobody there there's no cars around there's nothing there um one time i was in you know i used to go over there after the clubs closed and you know hang out and play music with my buddies or you know take my girlfriend over there and um i remember one night being there and i got up to go and turn over the record you know and as i was doing it uh, both me and my girlfriend heard footsteps run from like, you know, all the way across the lo loft right up to me. I mean, we heard it, two of us, you know. There was a door in the back that, you know, you opened it up. It went down these stairs, apparently to the basement or wherever. 
but it was just like blackness at the bottom of these, you know, <laughs> you could only see down. And it seemed like the light just kind of went into like this black hole. And it was, you got the creepiest feeling. It was, you know, it was one of those things where you went and you looked down there and if you started to put, you know, walk down there or anything, you got like a feeling, you know? And uh, I remember we, we got a, sh a flashlight and the flashlight actually, like, you know, didn't show as far as it should have. <laughs> When you started to go down those steps, it just kind of like all of a sudden the light got absorbed into the blackness. It was, you know, nobody ever went all the way down. I mean, it was, yeah, there was all kinds of things going on. One time I was up there with my roadie, we were returning equipment, and um, we heard footsteps upstairs. This is like 3 in the morning. Okay, there's nobody up there. We'd go running up there, and the people up there had moved out. So we opened the metal door. You know, slide it up, turn on the lights, looking around. There's nothing there. There's bolts of cloth all over the place. It had been like some sweatshop or something like that. We're, we go in there. We're looking all over the place to see if we see anything. There's nobody there. And I was standing next to a table, and there was a pipe about two inches thick, you know, two-inch pipe, uh, leaned against the table on top of a garbage bag. And while I'm looking around, I heard something, you know. I looked over. And the pipe was coming, you know, towards me, but the garbage bag was moving with it. The garbage bag on the floor. So it was, the whole thing was coming like this. And that's when I, you know, <laughs> I was out of there. <laughs> and um, I mean, this is all stuff, you know, that I mean, definitely did happen in front of many witnesses all the time. You know, and I mean, it freaked us out. We got used to it, you know what I mean? And uh, we weren't about to give up the loft because it was so cheap and so nice. <laughs> You know, we got to, Steve and me got a copy of the first Ramones album as soon as it came out, you know, because we heard some buzz about them, and and of course we loved it. <laughs> they played the Tomorrow Club in Youngstown, and all the Dead Boys drove down there to, uh, you know, to see them. And uh, I mean, this is back when they were still, you know, very primitive. They still had Mickey Lee, <laughs> you know, Joey's brother was uh, the roadie. Uh, they didn't have their whole big crew and all that. And we were like, you know, some of the only people there. There's only like 20 people there. And so they came out and we were hanging out and we got to meet them then, just kind of introduce ourselves. Well, we developed a friendship right then. And then, you know, they needed to go to the, um, to get to the highway. So we had them follow us. I remember on the way there, Steve had me take the, the wheel, you know, I was in the passenger seat. We used to have the trick where he would climb out the window, get on the roof and moon people, you know, or something like that. And. So he did that, you know, got up on the roof, and I'm driving from the passenger seat, you know, like this, you know. <laughs> and uh, that impressed them. <laughs> you know, Stiv and Joey exchanged numbers, and uh, Joey, you know, said, hey, you got to play CBGBs. And uh, we said, yeah, but we don't want to do the audition night. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell Hilly you guys played with us. I saw you play. You know, he'll, he'll go with it. And Joey had never heard us. He was taking a big chance. We could have sucked. You know, but um, that was how we got our first gig. You remember the first time you walked into CBGB's? Oh, yeah. That was, uh, you know, my fa famous story. Just basically, I walked in the door, about walked about three steps, and felt myself slide, and I looked down, it was dog shit. And, <laughs> you know, then my second impression was, oh, you know, this is way smaller than I thought it was going to be, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, it became home pretty quickly.
that first gig. Well, like, it were was. The, were the Ramones there for that? Or? Um, you know, Joey came down, Dee Dee came down. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought you know Legs McNeil, John Holmstrom, Roberta Bailey, Danny Fields, a whole bunch of the scenesters. You know, I think Alan Vega was there, but it was a bunch of people we'd seen in rock scene, you know, magazine, um, in the audience, and um, so they and they liked us, you know. Um, the main drawback to that first gig was that Stiv used to, you know, jump on door uh, amps and stuff like that, and this is on the old stage; it was only about six inches high, and Stiv jumped on my Sound City, and it was on wheels. And they weren't prepared for it. And it went rolling right off the stage. And my, <laughs> and my amp head hit the ground. And I just thought, oh, well, this is great because my amp head's got to be broken, you know. I just, sat, I just sat down on the edge of the stage, you know, stage with my head in my hands. <laughs> and uh, and Stiv and, uh, you know, Stiv, of course, going, well, come on, fix it, fix it, to the roadie. And the roadie's doing what he can. And he got to work. <laughs> Well, back um, during the first gigs, it was anything we could get our hands on because Stiv had a Chevelle, Johnny had a GTO, and um, I didn't drive. Jimmy didn't, you know, drive. Jeff wasn't in the band yet, so we, never, we took the Chevelle like once or twice. We, uh, a friend of mine had a step van, you know, one of those big old, you know, uh, like a UPS van, you know, kind of thing. And uh, we took all, we went in that twice. And then after that, we realized that the gas, you know, we were making like $27 when we had our first gig at CPs, you know. Like, and then, you know, we, we never made more than 200 you know, back in those days. I remember one time we didn't have a car, and we, we all of a sudden got a last-minute call from Hilly to come up and play a gig. And this was for the CBGB's, the live at CBGB's album recording. And so we had to go do it, you know. Stiv had a you know a, a girl that he had been roommates for uh, with before um, they um, before he got his own apartment, and he called her up. And he goes, "Barb, you know, can I use you, you know, use the car? I, I got to run to the store and get cigarettes." And she said, "Oh, sure, you know." And she gives us the keys, and Stiv and me got in the car. We drove off, got a U-Haul trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Went down to the log, got our gear, and drove to New York. <laughs> and we called her like halfway through Pennsylvania and said, you know, now Barb, don't be pissed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she was, but she, you know, once we explained it, she understood, <laughs> you know? What was it like to tour down like through the South and uh, walk into a diner in Alabama? Well, we never played Alabama, and you know, back then we flew most places. Yeah, because that was the way you did it, you know. Like I know we kind of, you know, used vans up to a certain point, and then we would get to um, we flew to uh, Minneapolis, and we picked up a van there for the rest of the tour, you know, going down through uh, Texas and all that. And uh, it was really, really strange because you know we got down to Houston, and they didn't have a clue. And the local radio station had a uh, a punk contest, like two hundred dollars to uh, the biggest punk, you know. Other, and the guy that won got came in. He had this blonde girl, and she was just dressed like a regular, you know, seventies chick. But and he's wearing his motorcycle jacket and his little orange sunglasses, and he's got like a chain, you know, with like two inch links wrapped around his neck, and she dragged him <laughs> by it across the floor. 
<laughs> and no, the prize was a motorcycle jacket. He won. He won. And you hear stories about uh, bands fighting with the audience. You know, um, incidents happened. Not as frequently as you would think, but um, my favorite was in Chicago because the audience was throwing rolled-up newspaper at us <laughs> and thought that was punk. We just kind of looked at each other, and you know, next thing I know, there's like you know, these people sitting at the table in front, and I just came right down off the stage and kicked their table over, and their drinks go flying, and everybody in the place like immediately moved back like thirty feet, you know. <laughs> So, in Texas, I remember doing a radio interview, and questions were just amazing. I mean, these people were just kind of really slow, and, you know, what, what kind of food do you guys eat? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, tuition going, pussy, you know, and things like that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very strange in Texas. So when you guys were walking around during the day, I'm assuming you're wearing the exact same thing you'd be wearing on stage. Oh, yeah. Night. But, you know, in Houston, we didn't walk around much. I mean, uh, you know, we were a late band. We played and we stayed up till, you know, five, six in the morning. And so we slept through most of the day. So we weren't, you know, we didn't give a shit about going out and walking around. Really. <laughs> it was all about the gigs and the party and the bar. <laughs> Oh, we got one of the worst record deals. I mean, it was, you know, basically we originally signed the deal was with CBGB's record. Uh, contingent on Hilly selling our contract to a major, you know. And the worst thing was, um, it was the worst case scenario. If you couldn't sell it, we would have to put it out on CBGB's, <laughs> you know. I mean, they took, you know, pu publishing from us, you know, not just a small chunk. It was like 30%, which I believe it or not, I'm still trying to get out of some parts of that. Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, like when Guns N' Roses did my song, Seymour Stein got money from me. You know, um, it's, uh, there's a new law now where you can reclaim your publishing, and I'm working on that, and that won't be happening. That, that should go through within the next six months, and I'll own my songs, you know, myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was all over the place back then. They, all, they always wanted publishing, you know, the way your money was recouped was rigged. It was, it was, Real shifty. They, you know, pretty much were very contemptuous of the bands, if you ask me. I mean, you know, Seymour Stein, you know, he just signed up as many bands as he could, put out records, whatever sold, you know, the most. Even if it was like 10,000 records, that was it. And the rest of the bands were taxed right off of those bands. So the Talking Heads and Ramones were the ones that took off immediately. Me and Richard Hell were taxed right off, you know. Do you believe that the record executives abandoned punk rock before it had a chance to make it to middle America? Yes, definitely. Um, when we got the call to come back off tour so we could talk, you know, uh, Seymour called us into the office mm -hmm. and he said, you know, um, guys, you know, I, I've bet a lot of money on punk rock and I was wrong. <laughs> and I'm just looking at him like, huh? <laughs> you know, and... Um, he said, you know, if we were going to continue the relationship, that we should probably, no, no, not even probably, you have to change our image, uh, change our, um, you know, songs, you know, make more commercial, pop, you know, oriented songs, and possibly change the name of the band. I mean, uh, you know, and I said, well, no, get yourself another guitar player, <laughs> you know. Um, 
and obviously punk glassed and punk, you know, black jeans and Macy's, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later, and still going strong. <laughs> Back then, without the internet, it took two months, two or three months for the news to hit someplace, you know? And Seymour just didn't have the patience. And I think he was, you know, we scared the hell out of him. You know, we weren't like your normal band. We didn't really have a whole lot of respect for him. He knew it, you know. No, I mean, Handsome Dick, you know, was just a character. He was such a character back then. He still is, but he was, you know, back then very much still the Handsome Dick Manitoba, you know, and he was doing the wrestling, the wrestling shtick and all that. Mainly, I just remember Dick being, like, just hilarious all the time, you know. The Dictators became... Really good friends pretty quick. They kind of took us under their wing a little bit. Ross the Boss really helped me get my sound back then, you know, because I wasn't, uh, you know, he was, you know, coming in giving me tips on how to, you know, you know, use heavier strings and, you know, set your amp like this. It doesn't have to be on 10. And, you know, it gave me a lot of good advice that I still use to this day. And me and him are still, you know, close friends to this day. You know, it, Dick was just always hilarious, you know, and uh, he still is. He's, you know... I mean, they were such a great band back then. I mean, they still are, but, you know, to see them, I mean, we saw them at the 82 Club, and when I got back to the apartment, Johnny Blitz and Jimmy Zero were, and Jeff Magnum were sitting up, all depressed. You know, I walked into the room, and there was like this gloom vibe, and I said, you know, what's, what's the matter, you guys? And they were like, well, you know, well, did you see the dictators? We're never going to be as good as them. We don't have to be. We're a different band. It's that you know, it's a totally different thing. You know, you know they were they were very depressed that night. I'm always amazed by some people's uh, sense of art being some kind of competition. Was, yeah, was there a lot of that in the in the scene? Um, in New York, no. I mean, it was um all very all the bands were very supportive, uh, very nurturing. New bands, they everybody lived at CBGBs. I mean, you know, we would go see bands. You know. Three or four nights a week, you know, no matter what. I, you know, my main memories of Stiv, um, obviously, are, you know, on stage, and also, you know, we roomed together on all tours. And on stage, we had such communication, you know, me and him. And um, I just remember, you know, the eye contact with him when we'd be on stage, you know, if we'd be going good, we'd, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> give each other the wink or a lot of late nights talking about, you know, conspiracy theories and things like that. Um, one time we played Detroit, he had death threats on his life uh, because of something that happened years before there. And um, I remember getting in a cat, you know, we actually had a, it was so serious that we actually rode the, the gig in police car, a police car with two others. Like, you know, it was like a security detail. And um, we were there. And he was, he was so nervous that he actually had like an envelope. You know, here, if anything happens to me, give this to my parents. Wow. <laughs> you know? And um, nothing happened, but, you know, it was... <laughs> It was very strange going to a gig and thinking, man, what if something does happen? <laughs> this could be the last time I see him, you know? Were they some kind of religious freaks? That no, were... it was a biker thing. And it was heavy enough that they were, you know, taking it seriously. And we had, we actually had, like, you know, Detroit cops out with guns 
on on stage with us, on one on each side. My best buddy Todd had a chance meeting with him when he was way younger, and um, and he just took all this time and talked to you know my buddy Todd. And he has a yeah. nice picture he still has up in his living room of him and Stiv. You know, is this warm person who took the time to talk to well, a Steve, fan. Um, you know, he loved the fans and he was a really warm guy. And if, you know, if you caught, you know, caught his interest, I mean, he would hang out with you all night, you know, especially if he had coke, but you know, <laughs> it was, uh, but even if you didn't, he was, uh, you know, he would be, you know, he loved a good conversation. He really did appreciate the fans. And, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of diehards that, you know, would come to every show, you know, even years later. Can you tell me how you heard about his passing? Um, yeah, we, I was asleep, and my friend John Spacely, um, you know, came over and rang the buzzer and woke me up. And I had been out late the night before at the uh, the Continental. And the sick thing was that if there was a guy there that we used to have been planning on doing a project together, and. You know, I had just spoken to him like the week before, and he was like, okay, well, you know, be in New York when I get there because I want to, you know, see if we can't set up a rehearsal and you and me write some songs and get working on this thing, you know? And it was going to be me and his reunion after all, you know, all those years, man, without the Dead Boys, though. And we had actually been out to um, L.A. Um, I went out to do a recording on a Jeff Doll album and do a couple gigs. And... Stiv came out just to kind of hang out, but we went out and we, you know, met with different labels. I mean, we actually talked to Rick Rubin at one point, you know, we were, um, we were shopping labels. We were getting ready to try to do something else. And uh, this idiot had said, oh man, hey man, I, I just saw Stiv over at, uh, what do you call it? Like, you know, some rehearsal studio. You know, he was over there practicing with uh, his new band. And I was like, what? You know? And, uh, and the guy was bullshit. He was completely, you know, just making this shit up off the top of his head. And I was really you know, kind of mad and depressed because I thought my friend had like kind of done, you know, something behind my back. And I got really good and drunk and, you know, was wondering how I was going to deal with this. And then the next morning to find out that, you know, Steve had died 3,000 miles away and never even been in New York. Um, you know, it pissed me off even more. But Spacely grabbed me and um, said, come on, man, let's go out and have a, you know, get a couple of beers. And we went to downtown Beirut. And the first thing he did was goes, um, you know, you know give, me, give us two triples of, uh, you know, wild turkey or whatever. And um, I said, whoa, it's like 11 in the morning. <laughs> you know, and I said, okay, well, so we did them and guzzle it, and then he goes, um, two more <laughs> to the bartender. And I'm like, hold on, what's up, Space? You know, and uh, I thought, you know, we drank the second one, and I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. I thought, oh, shit, you know, somebody died. And I, my first thought was my mom, you know, because she was older, you know, and she was in touch with Space Lee, and she, um, somebody would have, that was where, I, you know, I stayed there a lot, and that was the best way to get in touch with me was to call in Space's house. And I thought for sure that was what it was. And, and I said, oh, I said, okay, Spacely, um, you know, what's up? Who died? And um, he just kind of looked at me and he goes, um, I said, it's not my mom. And he goes, no, he goes, Stiv. And 
it was just, you know, all of a sudden I just had that icy feeling, you know what I mean? We just, you know, felt cold and it was just kind of bad. It was the worst feeling. Not sure how to how to phrase that. There's so many folks that didn't make it out of that scene. Oh yeah, and I mean I lost uh Within five years, I lost most of my best friends. I mean, I lost uh, Stiv, Johnny Thunders, Jerry Nolan, um, Will, who's a friend of mine that used to work at The Divide, um, plus a few others you've never even heard of. But um, yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a very hard time for me. I actually got kind of numb to it, but, you know, because it was, you know, almost like natural causes for the scene. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Cheetah for inviting me into his office here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Cheetah at cheetahchrome.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.